Matthew 21. We continue. Last week we started in chapter 21, and as we did, I mentioned that, uh, that this is now as we begin our look at the final week of Jesus' life. Within a matter of just a couple of days from where we're looking today, Jesus will go to the cross to suffer there for you and for me, raised three days later, triumphantly conquering sin and death on, on our behalf. We mentioned last week, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling prophecy, fulfilling the, the scriptures that said the Messiah would come in riding on a donkey, come in on the specific day that we looked at last week. And we continue now in verse 12. As we mentioned, as we closed last time in verses 10 and 11, as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, the whole city is stirring spiritually moving as Jesus is there, the cry, who is this? We continue in verse 12. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But you are making it a robber's den. Jesus comes in, and as most did, again, we talked of this last week and showed a, even a picture of it. As you come over the top of the Mount of Olives, the, the Temple Mount is before you. It's glorious. It stands out. And most people, the first place that they are going to go is into the Temple, the temple Mount area. And Jesus goes there and with his disciples. And it tells us that Jesus sees a scene that was taking place all the time at that time. Sees a scene of buying and selling, money changers that are there exchanging currency, people selling sacrificial animals, because people would travel. There was a need for this that needed to be done. People would be traveling from all over the area traveling long distances, many of them, and needing to buy an animal for sacrifice then. It wouldn't bring it all the way from where they were coming, many of them. Some of them would need to exchange those things. This was a needed thing. The problem was, was where it was taking place. It was taking place in the temple area, in the court of the, of the Gentiles. This first, as you come up the steps and get up onto the level, that big area that is there, that is where this was taking place. And that's where Jesus takes offense to this. He drives out the money changers. He drives them out. It says that he's turning over the tables. He, his, he's, he's stirred very down to his very core as to what is going on here. It says that he, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 56, and Mark tells us that the full quote of what Jesus said is, you have, you have this place is to be a place of worship and prayer for all nations. Again, quoting from Isaiah 56, it says, also, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. The way that the structure was set up, the big, the very large court that was surrounding the temple all the way around was the court of the Gentiles. Gentiles and those who had infirmities, those who were, who were sick, those who were blind, lame, they could go no further than that. There was another court for women, a court for Jewish men that could go no further, and then the priests that could go to a certain point, but then the Holy of Holies where only the high priest could go once a year. There were these different areas. Well, this outer area, the large one here, the court of the Gentiles. And this was a place, it was God's heart that any, anyone, doesn't have to be Jewish, anyone who had a desire for the Lord, who had a heart for God, could come and worship and pray there. That's God's heart. It's not God's desire that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. That is God's heart. But Jesus, when he comes up into this area, instead of finding people worshiping and praying, he sees all of this going on, this commotion. And imagine again, this is Passover time. 
So there are way more people than normal here and all of the buying and the selling that is going on. And just imagine a marketplace that is going on and people competing over one another. I have the best price. I have the best price. And screaming and yelling over everything. This is what's going on. Instead of prayer, instead of worship, and what, what, I, what really gets to Jesus again is this, is this is the place, this is the court of the Gentiles. They are to be representing, as the Jews, they are to be representing God to the world. And this is what the Gentiles see when they come in? Misrepresenting Almighty God. Things needed to be overturned. And Jesus literally overturns the tables. Now, the Bible tells us something interesting, because the temple, you go again to the Temple Mount, we looked at it last week, the temple, gone, it's not there anymore. The Bible tells us where the temple is today. The temple is in us. As believers, we, the Bible tells us, we are the temple of Almighty God. And Jesus lines out for us very clearly, as the temple of Almighty God, how we are to represent him to the world. He says in John 13, 35, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. All men, to the world, they will know by looking at us how we represent him with love, that Greek word agape. Who defines what agape love is, what it looks like? God does. And he tells us in his word very plainly, very clearly, 1 Corinthians 13, it tells us, love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. It does not brag. It's not arrogant. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. Someone offends us, does something against us. Love does not keep a record of that. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. That is how we are to represent God, that list. Let me ask you, how you doing? How are you doing in how you represent God to the world? And let me tell you, the world is looking. The world is watching, especially in the days that we are living in right now. The world is watching us, professing believers, how we are reacting, how we are treating one another. We all need to take an inventory of this, how we are representing God, and might I say that we all need to let the Lord overturn some tables if he needs to in our hearts, in who we are, because we represent the king to the world. The, again, this area, this court of the Gentiles, this, is, this was the representation that they had, and we're gonna see the Jewish leaders they didn't care. They didn't care what the world, what the Gentiles thought when they came in and they saw this. And they, they didn't care largely because they're getting, a, they're getting a portion right off of the top of the proceeds that are coming in from this. Do we care? Do we care enough about what the world sees in us? Let me tell you, Jesus cares. <laughs> and he did care greatly here. He demonstrates in, in these couple of verses here that we see here, we de he demonstrates again another layer of his authority that he is exercising here. We've seen his authority over nature. We've seen his authority over sickness and disease. We've seen his authority over the spiritual realm throughout our studies in, in the gospel. But we see here him now exercising authority on the Temple Mount. But even in this, the authority that he exercises in this part is just a small snapshot. It's just a glimpse of the authority over the temple that he will show in just a couple of days. Because it tells us that this picture, the physical, the physical temple that sits on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem is but a picture of the temple that is in heaven. And it tells us in Hebrews 9 and 10, when Jesus goes and he dies on the cross for our sins, which is going to take place in just a couple of days from here, he goes actually into that temple, that temple that is in heaven. The author of Hebrews in 9 and 10, the greater temple, the perfect temple. And he doesn't bring a sacrifice of the blood of bulls and goats, but his own perfect, precious blood. 
And in that, exercising the authority over the temple and the authority as the ultimate high priest in our behalf, once for all, getting us eternal redemption, perfecting us for all time. (laughs) The glorious authority that he proclaims over the temple on our behalf. Well, we see as we continue in verse 14, the response of the people, the response of the chief priests. It says in verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise for yourself. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. The people's response. Jesus clears out these money changers and and all of this stuff that is going on there. And the response of the common people, the Gentiles, the response of those that were blind and that were lame. Again, remember, they weren't allowed to go any further. Most of them would hang out on the steps outside leading up to the Temple Mount where they would be begging and, and asking for alms. Here they now come to Jesus. And I, I find it interesting that some of them that are coming are the blind because all they could hear before was the bartering and the yelling and the screaming and the commotion. They'd never heard the prayer that they probably came to hear, the praise that they came expecting to hear. They'd never heard that before. And now after Jesus clears this all out, what is this that's going on? And they're drawn to Jesus. And it says that he has compassion on them, that he heals them. And by the way, he didn't charge for it. He healed them. The people's response also in praise. Notice it says that the children, the children were shouting in the temple. This was, and and you can just imagine again, kids shouting and singing Hosanna to the son of David. Singing his praises. And the chief priests and the scribes, their reaction They didn't have any problem, again, with all of the unholy actions that were going on before. Again, they're getting a cut off of it. It helps them keep control of the things that are going on up there. They didn't have any problem with that. But they have complete, if at the very best, they have indifference towards the healing that is going on with the people that are coming to Jesus. And even worse, the absolute objection that they have towards his praise that he is receiving from these children. And I think, again, we need to, we can easily vilify these these chief priests, these elders, and we should. Their heart is absolutely in the wrong place, but we need to take a step back and say, Lord, is there anything in my heart that might reflect that as well? Do you realize that every week, Every week, God is doing a work here. It's amazing to, to see the changed lives that, that, the, that God, is, God is doing here. Marriages that are being restored, that, that the, from a worldly perspective had no chance, but God getting in the middle of it and marriages being restored. Eternities being changed as people surrender their lives to God. Amazing to see, but I... I would ask it, make sure that, that our hearts don't ever get to the point where we become indifferent to that. To where it, does, it becomes just a point where we come here and we spend our hour, hour and 15 minutes, hour and 20, the pastor's going long, and then we get out and we got to get home because we're recording the game and nobody tell me the score. And God bless you all who are here while the game's going on. But that we never become indifferent to what God is doing that we never lose sight of the fact that, that he's moving and, 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 and changing lives around us and we don't get, like I said, caught up with the fact that we got to get out of here because we got a lunch reservation or whatever it is, but that we, would, uh, that we would be caught up in what God is doing. And that we also wouldn't object to the way that other people worship. At times we can say, you know what, I, I, I love it when we're worshiping my way. <laughs> The, the, the style that I like or the different things like that. And we can, we can, if we're not careful, our hearts can object to the way that other people worship. I'm blessed by 
the, the, the way that, to watch people worship in different ways. It blesses me, and there's so many different ways that that goes on here. And again, there are, worship is a lifestyle, I understand, but as we worship, as we sing God's praise, the, 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 the different ways that that takes place. I have, to, I have to tell you, I was coveting last night, confession, I repented, but confessing. I was coveting. I did you guys hear the, the, when, when Rick was playing the organ this morning? I, I, man, I, was, I was coveting that gift this weekend, and I, I'm, I've repented. But then we're singing Christmas songs to electric guitars. <gasps> you know what? It's the heart behind the praise that the Lord looks for. And the heart of the children. We see again in, in the, the reaction of the chief priests. And again, I, I love this exchange. And in my mind how this goes on. They're like, do you hear what they're saying? And I can only see Jesus just going, yes. Yes, I do. I hear it all. Probably beaming as he hears the praise from these children. Because it comes from that innocent, pure heart. It says they're shouting. Shouting his praise. Something so, so, so that melts your heart, right? When a child sings. Just a couple of weeks ago, our soon-to-be three-year-old grandson was singing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It just melted my heart, and I know it melted the Lord's heart. And Jesus responds to their Question, yes, yes, I hear it. Have you never read? Matthew loves, he points that out to us as Jesus takes that little poke at them because yes, of course they've read. That's, that's all they did was read and read and read and read, but it never penetrated past their thick skulls into their hard hearts. He's asking, have you read it to the point where it, you're getting what is being said? And he quotes Psalm 8 verse 2. And the Greek translation, it's the Septuagint is what it's called, the Greek translation of the original Hebrew text, Psalm 8.2 says, praise of God from little children is perfect praise. Perfect. Because again, it comes from the heart. Well, it tells us after this exchange, Jesus retreats to Bethany for the evening. It doesn't tell us, but I, I would guess probably to the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha home of a friend there to retract, just retreat for the evening. Tells us in verse 18 then, now in the morning when he was returning to the city, he became hungry and seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, no longer shall there be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. Now we've pointed out as we've studied through Matthew it's important to understand that Matthew wasn't really concerned with chronology, the order of events. The other Gospels put together really line them up more in a specific order for us. Matthew, is he gets a lot of information, and a lot of times he gets it into a much smaller space. That's why as we've gone through this, I've tried to bring in the other Gospel accounts to bigger, paint a little bigger picture. Here, Matthew tells us what takes place in two verses. Mark tells us this actually took place over the course of two mornings. Jesus' first, with the first approach of the fig tree happened one morning, he, he, he says what he curses the fig tree, and then the next day, as they're going back in, the disciples notice that the tree is completely withered. Matthew packs it together for us in, in these, just these couple of verses. And again, Matthew is, in, is concerned with getting us the point as to the, what took place. And we look at this event. It tells us Jesus gets up the next morning, and he's hungry. Why was he hungry? Because Mary and Martha weren't very good cooks. And no, that's not what it says. <laughs> It doesn't tell us why he's hungry, but I could guess. Tells us in his word that Jesus often got up early before anybody else did and went away off by himself to pray. I believe Jesus got up while everybody else was still sleeping. Took him a while probably to find a place alone because of the, all of the people that were there, but got away and prayed. Prayed to the Father. 
especially because of what is coming up this week ahead of him. And as everybody else then gets up and they have breakfast and they start heading into the city, Jesus meets with them on the way in and it says that he's hungry and it says that he sees this lone fig tree right on the side of the road and he went up to it and it says that it was full of leaves but it had no figs on it. And it says then that Jesus says to this tree, no longer will you ever have any fruit on you. Now we can look at that and we see that this miracle that takes place, this tree withers and dies then because of what Jesus says. This miracle that we see here is, is a miracle of judgment and one of the only times that ever takes place of Jesus' miracles. But we also need to see it as for what it is. It is symbolic. It is, it's not vindictive. I mean, Jesus doesn't say to this tree, like when you, you're, you're just craving your favorite, your favorite slice of pizza from your favorite restaurant, you're hungry, and you drive there, and they're closed for remodeling, and you're just like, oh, curses on you. You know, that's, that's, not, that's not what's going on here. Jesus could have easily picked one of the leaves and said, become a fig, and boom. I mean, he turns water to wine. He multiplies the loaves and the fish. That's not the problem. This is symbolic. Jesus is, this is living out a live parable right before the disciples. This tree promised fruit with all of its leaves, but as Jesus came close, it produced none. Fig trees, they, when they blossom their leaves at the same time, the figs begin to grow. So a, leaf, a tree full of leaves should also produce figs. Promising fruit, delivering none. And no doubt again, as he is painting this picture about what is going on in quote-unquote religious Israel at the time, it looked great. The temple in all of its glory, the priests in all of their garb, following all of these rules and restrictions, these things, and going all the way through it, looked fantastic, but their heart far from him. Looking awesome, a lot of leaves, no fruit. And I, I can't help but draw a very real parallel between this story that we have here and what Jesus says to the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. Listen again, Jesus, when we studied through Revelation, we saw this, that each of these churches we, we can plug into and we can see the church even in our day. And we need to examine not only us as a church, but us as individuals as we hold these churches up to us. And this is what he says in Revelation chapter 2 to the church in Ephesus. I know your deeds and the toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you have found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Man, you got a lot of leaves. But I have this against you. You have left your first love. No fruit. There's a lot of leaves, but no fruit. Listen to what Jesus says. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do and do the deeds that you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. The great difference between what happened to the fig tree, you will bear no more fruit ever, and what we see in Revelation chapter 2, I will remove your lampstand, is he didn't give the fig tree a second chance. He gives us that opportunity to repent. So if we find ourselves in this situation as the church in Ephesus, really leafy, but no fruit, he says to our hearts, and he says that to us right now, repent, turn back, come back to your first love. Guys, being born again, being spirit-filled is not a title. It's a condition. It's not, it's not what we're called. It's who we are. It, it, it's not something that we wear on a name badge. It needs to be unprinted in our hearts. If we are born again, spirit-filled believers, we need to have the fruit of the Spirit falling off of us. 
The Bible tells us that, that we should be filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That fruit should be in abundance. See, a clear calling out to us and a challenge to us as believers, those who profess to be followers of Jesus, that we're not just leafy, that we're fruity too. And that didn't sound any better this time around. <laughs> Verse 20. Seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, how did the fig tree wither all at once? And Jesus answered and said to them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. All And all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. I, I love this as I see this again, the disciples, as they're with Jesus. Notice that word it says, amazed. They're amazed when they come back, and again, Mark tells us this is the next day. They come back by, and they walk by this fig tree, and they see it's, all the leaves are on the ground. It's dead right there. Yesterday, a vibrant tree. Today, dead, standing there, and they're like, wow. Amazed after all that they've seen and witnessed. John tells us that if everything that Jesus did were recorded for us, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to hold all of the volumes. And we've seen a lot as we've looked at just the Matthew's account of the miracles that Jesus has done. When we put it all in line with all of those other things, where do you think this, this miracle falls? Top 10? Top 20? Top 50? Top 100? Of all of the things, this, this miracle, yet it still, it says they're amazed still. And I'm challenged by that, and I challenge you with that. Are you still amazed? Are you still amazed with all that God has done? Are you still amazed as Jesus continues to work and move in his body? As we enter this Christmas season, are you still caught up in the fact that he became a baby? I hope so. I hope that amazement is stirred again in us. Well, Jesus, as always, never wastes an opportunity for a, a lesson for his disciples and for us. Here it's a faith lesson discussing the importance of trust, believing, notice it says that, and these things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. That word believing means totally sold out to. You can, you can say that you believe in something, but until you're totally sold out in it, it's, it, it's not truly believing. That's what this means, to put all of your weight on. And it's not, he's not saying have faith in faith. As a matter of fact, again, Mark's account tells us that Jesus said, if you have faith in God, Faith is only as powerful as its object. Faith in God. And he's, again, speaking here, if you have this faith, not just what he did to this tree, you could speak to this mountain, no doubt as they're crossing over the Mount of Olives, you could speak to this mountain and it would be thrown into the sea. Now he's speaking metaphorically, and they knew that. that was, it was common to say to move mountains then, the same thing, it had the same meaning it does for us today, Huge objects in front of us, impossible situations can be moved. It wouldn't make any sense to literally have a mountain thrown into the ocean. That doesn't, that would be pointless. He's speaking metaphorically, and it's the same thing. We looked at this a few weeks ago when we were in chapter 17. He said to them, because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will, be, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible to you. There's no limit to what can be done by a person of faith. But again, understanding what it is that Jesus is saying. This is not this prosperity gospel teaching. Jesus isn't starting something new here that you just name it and claim it, that blab it and grab it, that all of that. Stuff. This is not at all what Jesus is saying. 
He's not our genie. He's our Lord. It's his authority, not ours. Unlimited power with limited knowledge is a really bad combination. He's almighty God. He has all the power and he has all the knowledge. If, if he did just give us a blank check, gave us all the power with all, all the knowledge that he has, that we would try to move mountains that aren't supposed to be moved, that are better left right where they are because it serves his greater purpose, his absolute authority, his infinite resources. And the Bible tells us that when we, when we pray in that way, he gives us something far greater than the actual answer that we are asking for. He gives us the peace of God. The peace of God. Paul tells us, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. His peace that we can trust and know and believe in an all-powerful, all-knowing God who's in complete control. Verse 23, we see now as they continue on and they enter again the temple area, Jesus' authority is directly challenged and questioned. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? And they began reasoning amongst themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet. And answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. He also said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. They come to Jesus again, and they're saying, who do you think you are anyway? You come riding into town, you're throwing over these tables, you know, turning all of this sort of stuff, all of these things that you're saying, who do you think you are? Where does your authority come from? Now, they think they're going to trap Jesus in this. And we're going to see this, this process play itself out over and over and over again over the next couple of days in the, in the story as it, as it plays out. They're trying to trap Jesus. They're saying, okay, if we can get him to say that his authority comes from men, we got him because there is no higher authority amongst men than us. We're the chief priests. As a matter of fact, we have the high priest right here. So if he says from men, we can trump that. We can squash this whole thing right now saying we never gave you this authority. But if he says from God, we can nail him with blasphemy. So they come in with this plan thinking everything's great. They got him. Jesus says, well, let me ask you a question. Now, this was common. This, Jesus wasn't even disrespecting them in this statement. They, amongst the higher intellectuals, that's the way the conversation would often go. A question would be returned with a question. Now, Jesus isn't dodging the question either. He's not trying to change the subject. If anything, he's trying to pinpoint the subject. He's trying to get right down to it. And if they answer his question honestly, they're going to come up with their own answer to their question. So he flips the question back to them. John, John the Baptist, his baptism, his authority, where did that come from? Did that come from heaven or from men? Now that caught them totally off guard. They're like, we didn't see that coming. Time out, hang on, okay, time out. And so they huddle up, they move away from Jesus and they're talking. It says they reason amongst themselves, which as we've discussed before, always a bad idea reasoning amongst ourselves without getting God involved in the equation. And our flesh dwells no good thing, so nothing plus nothing equals nothing. Us together, just reasoning amongst ourselves, no good thing going to come out of it. And I can only imagine the discussion. Hey, okay, all right, all right. So how are we going to answer this? If we say that John's authority came from heaven, he called us a brood of vipers, and he called him the Lamb of God. That's bad. That, that doesn't bode well for us, so we can't say that. And if we say from men, we're going to have a riot on our hands because everybody around here loved John. He's, they look at him as a prophet. 
So they come back to Jesus and go, I don't know, beats us. We don't, we don't know. But the problem is that's not true. They did know. They did know the answer. They did know. In their hearts they knew. See, we know that because there's a story that's recorded for us of a conversation that took place between Jesus and one of their very own, a Pharisee named Nicodemus. A Pharisee who it tells us in John chapter 3, it says, came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God. We know this. We know you've come from God. As a teacher, they didn't understand who he was, but they know he came from God. For no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. I believe that Nicodemus is probably in this group even here. I don't know if he was part of the huddle or not, but no doubt probably there. This is again Passover. This is on the Temple Mount. He's already had a conversation with Jesus, and I believe his heart being changed and stirred by his conversation with Jesus. And the bottom line is they knew. They knew. Romans tells us that it's evident in every heart. But the bottom line is what are you going to do with the truth? They chose to suppress the truth. And in that, their foolish hearts became harder and harder and harder. It's what happens when you come face to face with the truth. You can either submit to it and surrender to it, or you can suppress it, and again, your heart becoming harder. Jesus, because of the hardness of their heart, he said to them, I'm not going to tell you directly either. He's going to tell them in parables. He's going to answer the question that they asked, but he's going to do it in parable form. Look, verse 28. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, son, go to work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Anybody else? I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. The man came to the second and said to the same, them the same thing, and he answered, I will, sir, but he didn't go. That sound like anybody's kids? Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into heaven, into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe him. Jesus tells a parable and asks a very simple, straightforward question. This is not a hidden meaning in this one. Which did the will of the Father? There's only one correct answer to that, and it's the obvious one. Even though initially he said no, he did the will of the Father. And he draws it back then to John. And he talks of the ministry of John. And John's ministry was very straightforward. John didn't sugarcoat anything. He called sin, sin. Pointed at people, called them out as sinners, and he says, you need to repent. Repent. Turn from your sin. Turn back to God. And in that message, he speaks of that, and he points, Jesus points to the fact that there were many who came to John, sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors, but when they were presented with this, their hearts were broken, and they did repent and they turned back to God, and he said, they will be in the kingdom of heaven before you, you leafy fig trees with no fruit, because you didn't. Because you heard the same message of repentance, yet you refused to repent. And not only did you refuse to repent, you refused to rejoice when others repented and came back. And in that process, your heart became harder. He goes on, verse 33, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. Now, anyone who is hearing this will immediately, any Jewish person will immediately know that Jesus is referring to Isaiah chapter 5. 
In Isaiah chapter 5, it says this. Let me sing now of my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard and a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, planted in it the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it. He also hewed out a wine vat in it. And then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, would I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? They know that we're starting off here and we're talking about God, the Father, as the landowner, the one who plants the vineyard, and Israel as the vineyard. They, nobody is going to miss that. And it's important we understand that as this goes, because then it goes on. When the harvest time approached, verse 34, he sent his slaves to the vineyard, to the vine growers to receive its produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one, killed another, stoned a third. And again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. Jesus now speaking of the history of the children of Israel, that God the Father sent continually prophets to them to warn them, to turn them from their ways, yet they killed them off. Hebrews 11, the hall of faith speaks of them, and starting in verse 36, others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two. They were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy. The Father sending prophets and continually rejected Verse 37 changes from historical to prophetic. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said amongst themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Mark again tells us that Jesus, in the parable when he's speaking, says not only he sent his son, but he sent his only beloved son. And again, I can only imagine if Nicodemus is there, if that didn't become real pointed. Because it was Nicodemus in that conversation with Jesus that we started looking at a moment before that Jesus said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish. I wonder if all of the points are coming together for Nicodemus as he hears Jesus lay out this parable. It says that they took him outside the vineyard and killed him. Prophetically speaking, this is going to be fulfilled in just a matter of days as they take Jesus outside the city walls of Jerusalem and he's crucified. Verse 40, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to the vine growers? Notice, when he comes, he is coming. Verse 41, they said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper season. Jesus said to them, did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. When they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. Again, this parable that Jesus lays out very clear, and they get it. They understand now exactly. If there was any, anything before that they were, weren't quite understanding, they understand exactly now that Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah and that, that he is speaking about them as the, these, these ones to whom the kingdom will be taken away from. The stone which the builders rejected 
becoming the chief cornerstone, again, quoting as we did last week from Psalm 118, the praises that were coming from the people as they were coming, Hosanna, Psalm 118, also in Psalm 118, the messianic psalm, speaking of the Messiah that is coming, that will the stone that will be rejected will become the chief cornerstone. Again, Jesus making it very clear and leaving them with a choice to again submit and surrender to the truth and submit and surrender to his authority or to reject it and become harder. The truth, that's all. those are the two options we have with the truth, to receive it or to reject it. And if you're here today, you are, you are facing the very real truth that Jesus came to pay the penalty for all sinners. And if you've never received that, if you've never accepted that, you're faced with that choice again today. The truth that we are all sinners and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us in our own way would, would continue to walk away on a straight path to judgment. But God, in his great love for us, he demonstrated that love that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He stepped out of heaven he lived a perfect, sinless life, and he died on the cross, suffering in our place. But we have to receive that truth. We have to submit to the lordship and his authority in our life. And if you've never done that, don't leave here today without it. Because if you reject and suppress the truth, your heart becomes harder. They understood it. They get it. They see it right here. They they, they understood that Jesus was speaking about them, and he's speaking about you when, in verse 43 when it speaks. There, there's two things you do with this rock, him being that rock. You fall on it broken, your pride broken, and exchange in that he gives you eternal life when you come to him broken. Or it falls on you and you are crushed. The world will tell you that there are Many ways to heaven. That's a lie. There's only one way to heaven. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way except through him. It's a, it's a narrow road. He tells us that. But it is a road. It is a way. And that's the only way. The only way to heaven. But the world will also lie to you this way and tell you and deny this truth. That though there's only one road to heaven, all roads lead to Jesus. Every road, everyone's path leads ultimately to Jesus. Because the Bible tells us that there is coming a day where every tongue will confess that he is the Christ. That he is the Lord. The problem is if you do it that day, when you stand before him in judgment, it'll be too late. You will, you will make that proclamation, no doubt. Everyone will. But those who, do, who don't willingly do it now will face judgment then afterwards, will face an eternity in hell, facing the wrath of God forever. My question to you again and today now in the truth is why would you do that when you can do it today, a free gift, and you can receive eternal life by simply acknowledging him as Lord today? So don't leave here today, if that is you, without that, that, that surrendering of your life and the receiving of that free gift. But there's also something that we need to understand as believers because it's not just the eternal life piece that, that it speaks of here as for us. Turn with me, and I know two, two more minutes, two more minutes. Turn with me to First Peter chapter 2. Because this theme of him being the chief cornerstone is carried throughout the New Testament. And Peter speaks of it here, what it means for us as believers, here and now. 1 Peter chapter 2, and if you look past where we're going to look today in verses 6, 7, and 8, you can see Peter quoting the same scriptures we're looking at right now. But I want to look at verses 4 and 5. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood 
to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He's talking of a building that is being built, and that building, again, is a picture of the body of Christ, us as believers. And note a few things real quickly. First of all, the foundation of the building is Jesus. He is the chief cornerstone. He is the first stone that is set, and all other stones are set in reference to and measured by him. He is the stone. He is the foundation. He is our living stone. Notice also, though, the foundation of the building, the framework of the building, that's us. Verse 5, you also, as living stones, there is this continuous massive construction project that is going on, the body of Christ. And the enormity of the project does not detract from your individual significance in it. If anything, it enhances it. Because as this building is going on and as God is doing this work, without you, something extremely important is missing. We are all part of something way bigger than us. Way bigger than us. And he fits it all together just, just perfectly. The framework of the building, the form of the building, it's a spiritual house. That word is singular, a spiritual house. It is not a spiritual housing development. It's a spiritual house. This building, the body of Christ, must be united together. How it must grieve the Lord continuously and what a way that we misrepresent God when we are so fragmented as the body of Christ. Perhaps you've heard it said, and I love it in its simplicity, but it's so profound. It says, in essentials, unity. Those things that are essential to our faith, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Those things that I talked about with salvation a moment ago, those are essentials. Those, those are non-negotiable. This is the living word of God. It is inerrant. It is his word. Non, we can't negotiate those things. In the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, charity or love. Uniting. The foreman of the building, you are being built up, being built up. It does not say you are building. We are being built up. Who's building? Jesus is. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If we're building it, it's not his. He's building it. But lastly, and here it is, the function of the building, to offer up spiritual sacrifices. That is our function. That is our role. To present our bodies, all that we are, all that we have, as a living sacrifice. We are not our own. We were bought with a price. We pour out our lives for him. It's amazing to me, again, to just reflect on the fact that he allows us to play a significant role in the work that he's doing. But we have to be willing to be used by him, submitting to his absolute authority in our lives. In that, we can shine brightly in this dark world. The times that we live in, we can shine brightly. And we need, we need to represent him well. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus.